Good morning. Let me invite the kids to be dismissed. Off you go. And as they go to the rear, let me uh, introduce myself to you. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. So thankful that you've uh, chosen to join us this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started by opening up God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for its power, for its strength, for its clarity. We ask now, God, that you would so reveal your Word to us, so as to have us to put on the whole armor of God, the truth that leads to righteousness through the gospel of peace, uh, as we trust in Jesus. Uh, as it is revealed to us, salvation revealed to us in the Word of God. Help us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in an article from February of last year in the New York Times magazine, author Andrew Sullivan writes the following about the opioid crisis. He says, more than 2 million Americans are now hooked on some kind of opioid. They claim more American lives last year than were lost in the entire Vietnam War. Overdose deaths are higher than in the peak year of AIDS and far higher than fatalities from car crashes. The poppy, which is the root, through its many offshoots, has now become responsible for a decline in lifespans in America for two years in a row, a decline that isn't happening in any other developing nation. And then he goes on in the article to do something curious. He goes on to describe and make a connection between the opioid crisis and the increasing malaise that we find ourselves in here in America. And he does that by describing the effects of opioids. He says, unlike cannabis, opium does not make you want to share your experience with others or make you giggly or hungry or paranoid. It seduces you into solitude and serenity and provokes a profound indifference to food. Unlike cocaine or crack or meth, it doesn't rev you up or boost your sex drive. It makes you drowsy. The drug itself saps initiative and generates social withdrawal. And from this, uh, Sullivan then connects that drug to the vacuous nature of our modern day society. He goes on to say, market capitalism and revolutionary technology in the past couple of decades have transformed our economic and cultural reality, most intensely for those without college degrees. The dignity that many working class men retain by providing for their families through physical labor has been greatly reduced by automation. Stable family life has collapsed. And the number of children without two parents in the home has risen among the white working and middle classes. The Internet has ravaged local retail stores, flattening the uniqueness of many communities. Smartphones have eviscerated those moments of actual human interaction. The proportion of Americans who identify as nuns with no religious affiliation has risen to record levels. Even as we near peak employment and record high median household income, a sense of permanent economic insecurity and spiritual emptiness has become widespread. And then he goes on to conclude the following. Addiction to work, to food, to phones, to TV, to video games, to porn, to news, and to drugs is all around us. We seek the instant easy highs, and it's harder to not see this as the broader context for the opioid wave. To see this epidemic as simply a pharmaceutical or chemically addictive problem is to miss something. Namely, it's to miss the despair that currently makes so many Americans want to fly away. Opioids are just one of the many ways that Americans are trying to cope with an inhuman new world where everything is flat, where every communication is virtual, and where those core elements of human happiness, faith, family, and community seem to elude so many. 
So until we resolve these deeper social, cultural, and psychological problems, until we discover a new meaning or reimagine our old religion or reinvent our way of life, the poppy will flourish. If you read the entirety of that article, it's pretty depressing. If it isn't already, just in the piece I read. See, what Sullivan seems to be saying is, is that opioids are drugs used to pull us away from a world that is increasingly making us sad. Major depression, loneliness, suicide, hopelessness are in some cases at all-time highs in America, according to numerous studies. And here's what's curious about all of that. All of this is not happening in the midst of an economic depression. All of this is happening in the midst of an economic boom. Nor is this all happening in the midst of a society that is repressive in terms of its demands. Instead, this seems to all be happening in the midst of a society that's allowing us to identify however we please. This is what we seem to have longed for, and yet the early returns on this kind of a society would not be what we have expected. The more money we make, the more so-called liberties we adopt, the more we live as individually we please, the more we progress the more our souls seem to be regressing. Society seems perplexed by this, or at worst, apathetic to it all. We've gotten to uh, this sort of thing that we asked for, and it's not the returns are not getting what we thought they might be. And so here's a question that I want to ask in light of that. It's a provocative question. It's a counter-cultural question. It's a, uh, it's a, a question of a revolutionary nature in the sense that it goes against what we are taught to believe, what our modern instincts would tell us. And here's the question. Is it all a lie? Have we been lied to? Have we been lied to? Is it possible that the narrative we are being fed in every sphere of our society, from elementary schools to graduate schools to Disney all the way up to Wall Street, is it possible that this narrative of personal autonomy and economic prosperity as the good life, is it possible that this narrative is actually a lie? terms of its good life. Knowingly or unknowingly, is the broader society's assumption about the good life actually leading us quicker to death? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 to 20, if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 to 20. Ephesians is in the New Testament. We only have one more sermon left in this sermon series, so next week we'll wrap up the letter of Ephesians, 23 sermons over the course of roughly six months. Uh, and here in this passage that we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians six fourteen to 20, uh, we're going to see the second part of the Apostle Paul's counsel to spiritual warfare. He's writing to a local church in Ephesus, and this is the second part of his counsel to spiritual warfare. Last week we saw what uh, we saw that we must, those that are in Christ, must put on the Lord's strength if we are going to stand against the devil's schemes. We will not be able to stand against him and him alone if we do not have this armor on because he is powerful. He will guilt us. He will tempt us. He will shame us. He will try and divide us and he will do it gently and slowly by degrees. He will do it by deceiving us to the truth. So as to then not have us to see and savor Christ. That's his aim. The way in which he does it, deceiving us to the truth. So that the goal that we would not see, savor, and worship Christ. He disguises himself as an angel in light. Behind him is all darkness. He's a liar and he's a cheat. He aims to keep us from seeing and saving Christ. And guys, he wins a lot of battles. A whole lot of battles. 
But he has lost the war. And he knows it. Paul tells us how to fight in the midst of these lies. And he says, moving on here from Ephesians 6, 14 to 20. Here we go. He says, stand therefore, in light of what we considered last week, the power of Satan. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Three points this morning, three sort of, as it were, marching orders to stand firmly against the warfare that rages all around us. Here's the first. This is where we'll spend the most of our time. We stand in the truth. Stand in the truth. In verse 10, Paul says to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not our own. We're too weak. We cannot do it. So how is it we stand in His strength? Verse 11, we put on the whole armor of God. We don't just put on some of the armor of God. We put on the whole armor of God. And it is of God because it is His strength, not our own. And here in this passage, he then goes on to describe that armor. In verses 14 to 17, Paul describes it. There's six elements or six pieces to the armor. You've got a belt, a breastplate, shoes, a shield, a helmet, a sword to fight and win with. And Paul is telling us that you neglect this armor You fail to put this on, you fail to uh, put on Christ in his might, you'll live in your own strength and you'll get hurt. It's that simple. But if you stand in it, if you put this on every day, you will stand because it is Jesus' armor and he is strong, for he has risen and nothing can overcome him. And as Jesus said on the cross himself, when he was completing and securing that armor, he said three words that are so critical for us to in Christ to understand and comprehend and live inside. It is what? Finished. It's done. He wins. Resurrection proves that three days later. This armor is how we live. This is how we stand in the victory of Christ. This is how we stand in His strength and in His might. Now as we look over those elements of the armor there, don't get distracted by how each piece of the armor relates to its reality. I'm sure plenty of you have sat in Bible studies where they've attempted to do that. I'm going to dismantle all of that. Uh, In other words, we don't need to understand how helmets protect our heads and how belts keep things up. right? Paul is using these things as analogies. The reality is, guys, we need all of these things on all of us all of the time. So we don't just need the gospel on our feet. We need it in our hearts. We don't just need salvation on our heads. We need it in our hands and our feet, right? So there are six things that are listed here, as I mentioned. And they are, as it relates to the reality, the the analogies relate to these six spiritual truths. So we have truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. I mentioned this last week, but you'll notice in the armor, the first thing is the truth, and you'll notice the last thing, the last piece of the armor is the Word of God. So you have truth, followed up by truth at the end, and everything in between between that is flowing out of the truth. So the devil's schemes and his fiery darts have the same basic tactic. He's trying to get you to believe, to live, and to love lies so that you won't see and savor Christ. And so the way that you attack his lies is with the truth. With the truth. And this armor of God is the truth. 
Now let me pause here just for a moment and address this notion of truth. So uh, we would not have needed to take this sort of sidestep in the sermon, say, 50, 60, 70 years ago. But we live in, uh, as Paul would call it, a present evil age. And one of the present evil ages, one of the aspects of the present evil age that we live in in this society is this notion of relative truth. We live in a society that now says that truth is relative. Uh, some philosophers would call it a post-truth age. Uh, and so it's important that we think about this notion of truth. When I go on the streets of D.C. and talk about the gospel, or maybe you've seen this, we'll go out there and I will purport some truth about the gospel and they will say, well, that's just true for you. It's not true for me. Or if I open up a Bible verse and sort of begin to describe it, some people will say, well, that's your interpretation. That's not my or someone else's interpretation. And then this is the reason why this is coming is because our society has moved on from this notion of absolute truth. They've individualized it. They emphasize the subjective, not the objective. They kind of brought truth internally to each individual. Most every university classroom that you go into assumes that. That's how they're training people. We as human beings cannot absolutely know the truth, so it is thought. We can only have glimpses into it. Enter into the, uh, the hearts and minds of American people is this notion of uh, this illustration of this truth uh, as it relates to the, the elephant and the blind people. If you all heard this illustration, right? The elephant comes out and the blind people only see a trunk and they think it's just a trunk. In other words, we can only know pieces of it. We can't know all of it. Of course, that analogy misses the fact that you're actually seeing all of it, right? So it doesn't actually work. Which leads me to what I would like to tell us about this. No one actually lives as though truth is relative. Just take a look at all the anger that we're finding in our world today. People are increasing and people are increasingly believing in morality. Nathan, you didn't say that right. No, no, no. They are increasingly believing in morality, right? That's where all the anger is coming from. They just want their morality to be shifted into to, to the foreground, whoever it is and whatever it is. No one actually lives as though truth is relative. That is so incredibly evident. But also this notion of relative truth is a contradiction in and of itself, right? If I say that there is no such thing as truth, then what did I do? I just made a contradiction of terms. I just made a truth claim. So if someone says that's your interpretation, that's true, that may be the case, but one of us has to be wrong. We can't both be right as it relates to inherent contradictions. Something can't be both A and non-A at the same time, right? Jesus can't be both Lord and not Lord at the same time. Either Islam, Buddhism, atheism, spiritual but not religious, or Christianity are true, but they can't all be true at the same time because they're making unique claims. And so relative truth is inherently contradictory and people know that because they don't live like it, which is the way Satan is deceiving us. Now look here into the text and what we see here as it relates to this armor. What it does is remind us the need then to know the truth. To put on this armor. To not dismiss it so that we might be set free by the truth. As Jesus would tell us, to set Free, free, to, to expose those lives and live in the truth. And, and Paul intends to say, what he intends to say here in this passage to the church is that the armor of God is the truth by which we are set free and we overcome those lies. We overcome that darkness. And I want you to notice that all six of these things, all six of these aspects of the armor of God, they all could be summed up in one word, the gospel. They're all explained by the gospel. You understand the gospel, you understand all of the armor of God. It's right there. So let me just show this to you. I'm going to make a sentence. If you have your Bibles in front of you, just take a look at those verses. And I'm going to make a sentence out of the, all of those armor pieces so as to show you how all of them are fit together in the gospel. Here it goes. 
I intended to put this on the screen, and I didn't get to it. Sorry. So if you want to come read it, you can do this. So it's my fault, not theirs. But here's how all these things are summed up in the truth. So here it is, the armor of God. I'm just saying this is summed up in the gospel. The truth, that's the belt, the truth of righteousness comes through the gospel of peace by faith in Christ, which is salvation revealed to us in the word of God. There's the whole armor. Summed up in the gospel. The truth of righteousness comes through the gospel of peace by faith in Christ, which is salvation revealed to us in the word of God. This is the truth that we have to know, that we have to rehearse every single day. You'll notice all of these pieces are dependent upon each other, summed up in the gospel, and we've got to put it on every day. This is the truth that we preach every Sunday to kind of reorient our lives because we get out of whack throughout the week. That's why we've got to come here every week to be reoriented to the truth and put this on and remind ourselves of it every single day. And so let me go back and just explain each one of those pieces really, really briefly. So the first one, truth there. Truth is that all that means is just what accords with reality. What accords with reality. The way that things are. Righteousness means right standing or innocence on the side of God. The gospel of peace, that's gospel just means good news. Uh, peace is, means harmony. There's no more hostility between us and God. Those that believe, that confess Christ, there's no more hostility between us. Faith means to trust. We are made righteous, not by works, but by faith in Christ and his life, death, and his resurrection. And salvation means rescue, rescue from the guilt of our sin, rescue from the accusations of Satan, rescue from the tyranny of death. Salvation is rescue from that great master, sin, Satan, and death. And finally, the word of God is just what it says it is. The word of God is given to us uh, here in the Bible. And this Bible is not man's word about God, but it's God's word to man. We need to properly understand it to be brought into the truth and be set free. And so pulling all of these pieces together, then pulling them all together in the gospel, the way that we stand firm in the face of the devil's scheme to lie to us is by putting on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God could be summarized in the gospel, which is the truth of righteousness that comes through the gospel of peace by faith in Christ, which is salvation revealed to us in the word of God, in the proper understanding of the word. Or, to go back and use those other things, the reality of innocence that comes by the good news of harmony with God by trusting in Jesus, who is our salvation, as it is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so the Gospel is our orientation as Christians. It's our identity. It's who we are. It defines the best days and the worst days. It defines all those mundane days we have as God's people. It defines our value. It defines our worth. It defines who we are and it defines whose we are. And no matter what sin Satan or the world may say about us, nothing and no one can take this armor of God away from us. We were given this might of Christ by grace and we're sustained in it by grace. So the devil means to dissuade us from its reality. To push us away from it. To not think about it. To not go deep into it. He means to distract us from the presence of that armor. From the presence of Christ. And so Restoration Church, my plea for you is to stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in it daily, momentarily. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the gospel in its reality. And when the lies come your way, consider Christ. Consider what he accomplished and also consider how he fought against the evil. And we could go back to Luke chapter four and think about the ways that this, the ways that Satan attacked him. And how did Jesus attack him? Satan would give him Bible verses and Jesus would respond with a proper understanding of scripture. He would come back with scripture. That's how we fight. 
Satan twisted biblical truth. Jesus responded to truth with clear and bold truth, which is how we ought to preach and speak. As Paul will pray later. Jesus knew the truth of the word. He put on the whole armor of God and he struck Satan with the clear truth of the word boldly. And because he did, so can we. So can we. Because he accomplished it. Because Jesus stood in the truth, we now can stand in the face of Satan's lies by putting on Jesus' armor that is, listen, perfectly fitted for us. We do not have Saul's armor of old, right? That David tried to put on and it didn't fit him, right? We have the armor of God. And because of Christ, those that repent and believe and trust in him, that armor is perfectly fitted for us to fight for the sake and the glory of Christ. Clearly and boldly declaring the truth Showing that God is real and that He is powerful. I love the way our, one of our gospel brothers of old sort of sums up this idea of living in the armor of God and overcoming lies. He says, uh, this is from a brother by the name of Latimer from probably 500 years ago. When he said, sometimes, when, sometimes I sit alone and have a settled assurance of the state of my soul and know that God is my God. He says, I can laugh at all troubles and nothing can daunt me. Another testimony of this comes from an author, Oz Guinness, who tells of the story of visiting Krakow in Poland. And he meets a survivor of a death camp there in Poland. And he's there visiting the death camp and he interacts or he comes into, uh, to meet one of the Christians there. A Christian man there that was actually in the death camp. And Oz Guinness asked the guy how he became converted to Christianity. And amazingly, the Christian says to Oz Guinness, I became converted while in the death camp. And Guinness, of course, is struck by this, and he asks him, well, how is it you came to be converted in the death camp? And he goes on to tell the story. He said, the reason why I became converted in the death camp is because there was another Christian, well, there was a Christian man that was in the death camp with me. And I noticed, listen, I noticed how his humor was used. His humor used to give him hope. That's a strange and curious thing, isn't it? Guinness goes on to explain what he meant by that. He said that the Christian's humor was hopeful. It turned the grotesque mismatch between the bleakness of their immediate prospects in the death camp against the brightness of his ultimate prospects in heaven. In other words, in the midst of extreme darkness, a man got converted because he saw another man put on the armor of God and laugh at Satan's scheme to try and disrupt him from his eternal peace, which he knew he could not do. And that, Not only had that man to stand, but it gave life to another man to see that there's hope. And so as horrendous and awful as that death camp was, that Christian man had something stronger, and he knew it, and he lived in it. The hope of salvation as it was revealed to him in the Word of God. Put on, then, beloved, the strength of the Lord so that you can stand in the face of this world that is full of death, full of darkness, by putting on the gospel and extinguishing Satan's lies as they come to you, as they come to us. Which leads me to ask you the question, looking down there at verse 16, how faith extinguishes the fiery darts. What darts is Satan firing at you? What lies is he having you to believe? What lies might he have us as a church to be believing? How is he attacking you? We can think back to those five ways that Satan especially gets us in this context that I mentioned last week. Is he firing at doctrine? Is he firing at distraction? The normalization of sin? Consumerism? Doubt? Discouragement? Is he trying to convince you that God is not good? 
God is holding out on us. That there's a better life without him. Is he trying to do that? Or just go back and consider chapters 4 to 6. Remember, that's the response of Paul after those first three chapters of the gospel. Just look back at those and think about those kinds of ways that Satan may be firing darts in that way. So, for instance, is he firing darts at sexuality? Is he firing at gentleness, patience, humility, or unity in the church? Is he striking at who you used to be? Is he haunting you with voices from the past? Is he attempting to reorder your sense of worth? Or who you might be if you just worked a little harder? If you just did a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that? If you had this person in your life and not that person? Is he striking at your anger? Bitterness, wrath, unforgiveness. So as to then prompt impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking, as he says in chapter 4. Maybe he's striking, as we saw in chapter 5, maybe he's striking at your marriage, at your family, at your job. Where is he? Or where has he? Or more, where might he be wounding you with his darts of lies? Where have the darts struck you and keep you keep on striking you? Wherever that is, listen to me, beloved. Wherever it is, lift up the shield of faith. Lift up Christ. The one that was tempted in every single way and didn't have one single dart hit him. Because he overcame them by his grace for his glory. And so he, again, shares that strength, shares that shield, shares his righteousness with you. So lift up Christ. Lift up Christ. Lift up Christ and see every single dart blown out by Jesus. He is the only way. We can stand in his strength. Stand in the truth. Stop listening to yourself. And start talking to yourself in the gospel. Stop listening. Start talking. Start reminding yourself of those wonderful doctrines of justification. Christ, in a sense, imputed or given to you. Propitiation, the punishment that you deserve, was placed on Jesus. Think about redemption. How you had to pay your sin, but instead Jesus gave his own blood to buy you out of slavery and into righteousness. Think about adoption. How he bought you out of your enslavement to Uh, death and dismay and he brought you into his own family because he loved you and reconciliation think about all of these wonderful doctrines and stand in those and fight those and stand them off so that you would stand you would live you would know and you would enjoy christ and push back the lies of darkness you are righteous beloved if you are in christ so stand in that reality if you've trusted in jesus stand in his righteousness tell temptation exactly what our brother john newton said ago Said, said so many years ago, that I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Say that. Reading back that counsel from Martin Luther last week, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell, but what of it? For I know who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is there, I shall also be. And so, beloved, listen, if you are in Christ, you are who he says you are. You are not who you might think yourself to be or who you might think yourself not to be. You are not who Satan says you are. You are not who your job says you are. You are not who your spouse, your friends, your neighbors, your bank account, your degrees, your accomplishments say you are. 
You are who Christ says you are because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Beloved, there's no need to construct an identity apart from the armor of God to, to try and construct an armor apart from the gospel. Any identity that is meant to be some ironclad apart from the armor of God is made of paper. This is your confidence. Christ is your confidence. And from that, you then flourish in all of those other categories. And you ought to. And this, Andrew Sullivan, is exactly why there's so much sadness in a world of so much prosperity. It is not, Andrew, ultimately market capitalism or technology because we do not war against flesh and blood. When you choose to not live in truth, whoever that is, when you choose to not live in the truth, to not live in the gospel, the more society does that, the more they choose to live in an armor of lies, the more they choose to live in an armor of unreality. And the human soul cannot live in unreality. Like fish are made for water and trains are meant for tracks, we were made to live in the truth. And the truth is that we were made for God, but we've sinned against Him. All of us, I have, we've sinned against Him. We keep believing Satan's lives that we can be like God. That's what society's doing. We can be like God. It's the same temptation of the garden. And the more that we try to give ourselves to that, the more that we lead ourselves away from truth, away from light, and into darkness. The reality is, until we find the light, we will not find, we will continue to live in the darkness. The uncomfortable truth, Andrew Sullivan, is that we are not the captains of our own fate. We don't get to define reality. That's what got us into this drug-induced haze in the first place. The truth is not created. It is not constructed. It is revealed. And the truth is our guilt is real, and until that's dealt with, we will never find our way again. We will keep trying to live in these sort of constructed realities. We'll keep turning to drugs, to porn, to technology, to movies, to drugs, whatever it is. And so that's the bad news. But here's the good news. The truth is, God didn't leave us in our guilt. He didn't leave us in that darkness. Those times we tried to flee from Him. Get this. He wrote Himself into the story. He wrote himself into the story. The truth entered into a world of lies so that lies would be exposed and we would be led back into the truth. And the truth that wrote himself into that story has a name. And his name is Jesus. The J- Jesus, the one that lived truthfully all of his days. And because he did, he was able to make a sacrifice in ways that no other otherwise righteous person could. He uniquely was able to satisfy the punishment for our sin. For all those that trust him. He's placed in a tomb and raises from the dead three days later so as to liberate, so as again to expose the lies that death is a great master that can't be overcome. So as to expose the devil's lies that there's something uh, that, that you can't sort of not worship God. You, he actually makes a way. Jesus makes a way into that reality. You can know God. You can come into his truth. You don't have to live in darkness and stay away from him. Jesus' armor is available to all who believe. There's a way back into the light, back into the good news. But if you choose, though, to deny the truth, to deny reality, deny the way out, the more you will then go on to live in the dungeon of deceit, which is exactly where Satan wants you to be. So come into the light. Put on the armor of God. Friend, repent and believe. 
Stop trusting in your own works, your own righteousness, that you can find joy and happiness and light and life away from the truth and come to the truth of Christ and know him and love him and live for him. And you say, well, Nathan, that is what I would like to do. What do I do now? It's a great question. You stand in the truth and then you pray. You can do this even now, right where you're sitting. Pray. So we stand in the truth. And secondly, we pray the truth. That's what you need to do. Pray the truth. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't see, as we move on in this passage, Paul doesn't see some disconnect between the schemes of the devil, the need to put on the armor of God, and prayer. The verse just keeps on going. Prayer, prayer, in other words, is part of his armor. Look at verse 18 again. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we must stand in the truth and we must pray the truth. And I love how pastor author John Piper talks about this. He says, life is war. We have to understand that. And the fact that the stakes of this war are higher than those of World War II, for instance. Secondly, we have to talk about the sovereignty of God over the world because it is only from this great truth that we can win the war. Only then can we come to the place of prayer, he says. Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls in for accurate location of the target of the world. It calls in to ask for protection of air cover. It calls in to ask for firepower to blast open a way for the tanks of the Word of God. It calls in the miracle of healing for wounded soldiers. It calls in for supplies for the forces. And it calls in for needed reinforcements. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. I would only add to that, prayer is also the opportunity to praise the commander for winning the fight. But prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to call up a pillow. You can see that right there in verse 20. Look down, it's right there. That's the spirit at which Paul is writing in verse 20. Paul writes this letter in chains. He's in prison when he's writing this. He's in prison for the gospel, and yet he keeps calling for prayer because he understands prayer is warfare. When you fight, you pray. When you don't pray, you don't fight. And when you don't fight, you welcome lies and darkness into your life. And so we must pray the truth. Pray the truth. And here in this passage, God's Word tells us how to pray when to pray, and who to pray for. How is it we pray? According to this passage in Paul, Paul says to pray in the Spirit, keeping alert with perseverance. That's how we pray. Praying in the Spirit is not some abnormal, extra special, sensory explosion of the Spirit kind of prayer. It's any prayer that is prayed in line with the will of the Spirit. What's your next question? What's the will of the Spirit, Nathan? Well, look what Jesus, how he answers this. In John sixteen fourteen. In referencing the coming of the Spirit, Jesus says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's the will of the Spirit? To glorify Christ. To glorify Christ. And we pray in the Spirit when all the different kinds of prayers that we offer, be they prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, when all of those prayers are connected to the end of our warfare, namely the glory of Christ. The coming of Christ in His kingdom. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in the Spirit when our prayers are tied to that great end. 
And these prayers must be on alert. They must stay on alert. We must not fall asleep at our post. Satan is scheming. Our flesh is dreaming of pulling us down. And so we must be alert in prayer. Like the days of Nehemiah, we have a trowel in one hand working and the sword, which is the word of God, in the other. Looking to what is in front of us, keeping an eye on the horizon at the same time, which leads us then to think about when we should pray. And the answer is clearly at all times. That's what Paul says right there. At all times. We pray in the spirit, keeping alert at all times. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, Nathan, he doesn't really mean all the time, right? Well, I would ask you, if you were deployed as a soldier into enemy territory, is there ever a time in which you wouldn't need help? You need it all the time. All the time. So the call to keep alert and persevere in prayer at all times is the call to keep that wartime walkie-talkie in the communication lines open to the commander. We have to remember that we are citizens of heaven living on a kind of enemy of earth. That doesn't mean that all is enemy here. But the God of this world is after us. He's after us as a church. And the exaltation and enjoyment of the glory of Christ and the good of His church depends upon our constantly communing with God in prayer. I think there's a great scene that kind of illustrates all of this in the movie Saving Private Ryan. Uh, if you've not watched the thir- first 30 minutes, I understand why you didn't. Uh, it's hard to watch. Saving Private Ryan's story of uh, Captain Miller... Well, all of the Allied forces storming the beaches of Normandy. And they get on those beaches and their soldiers lined up on those dunes. And Captain Miller is Tom Hanks' character. He comes up there and he runs up there and he asks all the people around, who's in charge? And they say to him, you are. Literal bullets and bodies flying wherever. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. And once he finds this out, he then begins to gather information from the soldiers around him. And his first instinct is what? He leans over to the guy next to him as a radio controller. And he gives information to that guy to call back to headquarters so they know how to help. His first instinct was to radio into headquarters because he knew that where help would come from. And then he gets more information and he goes back to the radio operator. The radio operator relays it again. More information. Then he gets more information and he goes back again a third time. And he leans over and this time when he talks to the radio operator, the radio operator is dead. And then he tries to pick up the, the, uh, the radio itself and try to call in for more help. But the radio's been struck with a bullet and it doesn't work. Can you imagine, in the midst of all of this, his communication with headquarters is cut off. His ability to communicate to bring in help is cut off. What would that be like? We don't have that problem. We don't have that problem. We never will. Christ has secured clear lines for communication at all times. We can always commune with Him. We can always call for resources for Him. We can always call for thanks and supply and these kinds of things. The lines of communication are always open and our King sits at headquarters waiting gladly to receive our messages. He is prepared to send down weapons of warfare, which is the truth, righteousness, faith, salvation, the gospel, the word of God, the armor. He's ready and willing to send it down. He can and he will provide answers in our prayers. He will provide direction or more often he will provide strength to just keep fighting. And here's the even better news. If it can't get any better than that. When we don't know what to pray. God's word tells us that Jesus prays for us. The spirit prays 
for us. Romans chapter 8. When we don't know what to pray, the bullets, the bodies flying, we're immobilized. Jesus prays for us all the time. Isn't that amazing? For us individually. He's interceding for us. The Spirit and the Son intercede on our behalf. So we pray in the Spirit. We pray at all times. But for who? Yes, we should pray for ourselves. But look where Paul goes in verse 18. Making supplication for who? For the saints. We pray for the church. So how's that going? The church is the expression, as we've seen in Ephesians 3.10, the expression of the manifold wisdom of God. It's the castle that's being attacked at all fronts all the time. We pray for the saints that are at war around the world. That's what Captain Miller was doing on that beach in Normandy, right? He knew that their success was his success. He knew that his success was their success. They were comrades in arms. He knew that. They were fighting in the same uniform with the same weapons and the same goal. And so he was radioing in to call for reinforcements, not just for himself, but for his band of brothers so that they might stand victorious and push back the enemy. He wasn't just thinking of himself. He was thinking of the entire army. That's how we must pray. And so Restoration Church, if you're a member of this church, a covenanted member, you've covenanted that you would do this, that you would pray for one another. And we must. Because the lion prowls around our family every single day, seeking to devour us by deceit. And as the family of God, we must pray for one another. We are not isolated individuals fighting individual battles. You can't just pray for you and your life. You should do that. But much more than that. Be as the church of the blood-bought body and the armor of God. Or the, not we are not the armor of God. We are the army of God, I should say. And prayer is a weapon we deploy to fight for one another and see Christ exalted in our lives together. And so I pray, for instance, for people in our church to find sustainable work. I pray for people in our church to find healing in their bodies. I pray for people in this church to not forget about Jesus in the midst of all the bullets and the bodies that are flying around. And so battle-torn, I also pray, battle-torn and war-weary saints, that we would remember that a day is going to come when we will cross the Jordan River and we will lie on its beaches and be so thankful and at rest that we stayed the fight. And I pray for that. We pray for each other, not to mere trifles of life. Faith to believe in the midst of fight. That's how we pray. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in the other parts of this city that are laboring for the same gospel that are on the same beach, as it were. That's why we so regularly pray for other churches in this church. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Grace D.C. Meridian Hill, and Grace D.C. Downhill, and Grace D.C. Mosaic up in Brooklyn, for Redeemer City and Union Church in Brooklyn. We pray for them. We pray for District Church over in Columbia Heights. We pray for our brothers and sisters, right, at Amazing Grace Bible Church, Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia. How about that, Spanish speakers? I still got it. We pray for them, right? We pray for them. We pray for Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We pray for Redemption Hill. We pray for all of these other churches, for Church of the Advent, Church of the Res. We pray for them that they too would advance, that they too would keep going. We work together. We pray for them that Christ would be exalted. We also pray for churches to be planted around our country and around the globe. We're regularly praying for churches all over the world. Praying for churches in South America and in Russia and the Middle East, in Kurdistan. Up into China. We want Christ to be exalted in every tribe, tongue, and nation. We want light to push into every corner of every city on planet Earth. Jesus bought it and he deserves it. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we pray for it as vessels of light to push back darkness. 
utilize, brothers and sisters that are members of this church, utilize this wonderful war doctrine, this war piece of paper. Really useful. To not only pray for the members of this church, but there's also the the leaders of our church, the deacons, the community group leaders, all the various ministries that we support in this city, like DC 127, the foster care system, things like that that we're trying to help. There's all kinds of prayer help in here. We use this as a tool to pray in our church. We have to remember, though, that we are on the beaches of Normandy and we have a radio at the ready to call into the king where we can plead for him to deploy resources for our brothers and around the world. So keep at it, stay alert in it, and lastly, briefly, as we do this, we stand in the truth, we pray the truth, and we preach the truth. And we pray for the preaching of the truth. Preach the truth. This is part of our warfare. Verse 19, pray also for me, Paul says. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Isn't it encouraging knowing that Paul needed prayer to preach the gospel? It encourages me. And isn't it encouraging to consider that this guy sitting in a jail cell for preaching the gospel wants to keep preaching the gospel? And how could he not? He's an ambassador. Ambassadors represent other nations, another kingdom. And Paul knows. He knows the truth. He has the armor on. He knows there's a lot that don't know that armor. He's tasted and seen that God is good. He, I remember him telling his, his disciple Timothy uh, when he writes in that letter that I suffer and I'm not ashamed for I know of whom I have believed. Do you? Paul never got over the gospel and by the power of the Spirit, that's what made him a great evangelist. Guys, don't lose sight of this. The gospel is the power, not you. You're not the power. The gospel is the power. The gospel is not, I repeat, the gospel is not dependent on your grasp of culture, apologetics, or philosophy. The gospel is in the truth of the gospel, the spirit working in that gospel to seek and to save the lost. You don't have to be smarter. You just have to be compelled by the gospel that it is really good news. That the authority of Christ is far above all rule and authority, as is evidenced by the resurrection. And so, friend, if he has saved and is sustaining you, why could he not save and sustain someone else? Right? Just remember that. Remember that. He can save the most hardened criminals. He can save the most jaded skeptic. He can save us all. If he can save me, he can save them. And so we have to ask and remind ourselves of the questions in the midst of pushing back the lost when we're so skeptical. No, 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 no. They could never really come to faith in Christ. We then ask the question, did not God make Mount Everest? Does he not sustain the world? Did he not overcome death in the resurrection? What a small and yet amazing thing it is that he could save your neighbor, your family, or your friend. Just by compellingly asking them, persuading that person in the truth of the gospel to come to faith. Compelled by the power and the beauty of the gospel, part of our warfare is to preach the gospel. We stand in the gospel, we pray the gospel, we preach the gospel to anyone that would hear. And we pray for one another that we would do it boldly. Boldly. Reminded of the words of Christ that tells us he's going out, he's sending us out as sheep amidst wolves. So we are wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And then he goes on to say that when they drag you in front of kings and these kinds of things, I'm going to give you the words to say. So we don't even have to worry about what we're going to say in those moments and try to worry about all of that. We just have to lean into the gospel, trust the Lord, and he'll help empower us in those moments. The power to convert souls is not you. 
I mean, I fail at that all the time. I may have failed that in this sermon when I kind of take that deviation about what truth is. I think we need to say that stuff. But nevertheless, the gospel is the power. And so hold it out to everyone, including our enemies. Reminded that we once were the enemies of God. We stand in the truth. We pray the truth. We preach the truth clearly, boldly, regularly. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we fight. This is our whole lives. And guys, don't forget, Jesus walked these streets too. He stood firm in the truth. Before he went to the cross, he prayed the truth. And after the resurrection, he preached the truth and commanded us to do the same, that a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would know the great, great truth of our great deliverer. And so, yes, Andrew Sullivan, the despair that America increasingly finds herself in needs answers. But those answers won't be found in the reinvention of our way of life. It'll only, uh, it's only going to come by our getting brutally honest with the lies that we've been told in our believing. We need, Andrew Sullivan, the truth. And thankfully, the truth came down and defeated lies. And his name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And unless you turn from self and toward him, you'll never know what it means. And the malaise will only get thicker. But if you come and confess Christ, you stand in the truth of the armor of God. You pray that armor. You preach that armor. That gospel. You will live. It won't be easy, but you will live. And you'll come out of the darkness and live in the light. Put on the armor of God. All of it, beloved. Stand. Believe. And know that He's coming back soon enough. Trust the gospel. Live in it every day. Let's pray for that now. Lord Jesus, thank You for the gospel. You accomplished it. We didn't. All we have done is fail time and again. And yet you in your grace and mercy accomplish triumph over sin, Satan, and death. And by your grace, so can we. And so may we trust you and live in this power of putting on this armor every day. And may we stand against the lies of the evil one. Knowing that a day will come when the beach will finally be clear. And we will stand believing, testifying to the greatness of our king that accomplished it all through our feeble efforts. We love you, God, and thank you for this hope. May we live in it. Amen.